Okay, we read the first five verses in chapter 22. David is hiding from King Saul in different places. And we saw that his family was also forced to flee. And while he's on the run, he's also joined by 400 men, which isn't a bad nucleus for an army. And these men, they're the outs of society, but David needs them. And we'll see that sometimes he has trouble controlling them, but they definitely serve an important purpose. And we'll see how King Saul is plenty worried about them. And so now we shift the scene from David's wanderings and the narrative takes us to King Saul and his men. And we'll see in these next few verses, he's about to give them a pep talk. And before he does, verse six gives us a description of King Saul standing over his soldiers. And it says like this, Now Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had become known. We'll see what that means in a minute. And the verse continues, And Saul was sitting in Gilboa under a eshel tree or a tamarisk tree, on a hill, with a spear in his hand, and all his men or all his officials were standing at his side. Okay, so this verse, verse 6, is just packed with pshat and drash and we'll try to unpack it. What does it mean that Saul heard that David had been with them? It had become known. Well, it is a big deal that David has somehow organized 400 men to accompany him now. And this was the first time Saul is hearing about it. It was previously unknown to him. And now, as the verse says, it had become known. That is, it had become known that the word has spread amongst the Jewish people in Israel. It became known that David's got these new guys and it makes Saul all the more paranoid. And he's paranoid, as we'll see, because he didn't know about it earlier. He wanted to know about it before. And that's what he's about to say in the next verse. Nobody tells me anything. And most importantly, he's upset that David has support. People have spontaneously joined him. Saul doesn't realize that these men came to David on their own because they had all kinds of problems, as the verse said. And Saul is convinced that David has put this all together. He's put together this militia in an open rebellion against the crown. He's plotting to usurp the throne from Saul. That's how Saul sees it. In the words of the Radak, Ki Saul is saying that David is preparing to ambush me. Now, I'm not sure if Saul really thinks that or he's spitting it that way, trying to make David out to be the bad guy, like the media does in the United States. They let the violence go, they even endorse the violence, and then they spin it by blaming the other side for being violent. In any case, this little situation prompts King Saul now to make a speech, and we're going to see that in the next few verses. Before we get to that speech, we got to go back to this verse, because there's really some superfluous words in verse 6. What is going on in the second part of the verse? It says that he's sitting tachet ha'eshel b'ramah. Saul was sitting under a tamarisk tree b'ramah on a hill. Hey, what is that? Why is the verse telling us he's sitting under a tree? It sounds kind of surreal and really unnecessary. So you know there's a Midrash incorporated into this. And this Midrash is from a Sechetanit, page 7. And all the commentators bring it. What does it mean he was sitting under a tamarisk tree on the Ramah on a hill? So the Midrash teaches us that the word Ramah is a reference to Shmuel the prophet, who was from Ramah. Remember how he opened the book of Shmuel, the very first verse? His father Elkanah was a man from Ramatayim. Okay, so what does this all have to do with Shmuel? So the Midrash says that Saul was sitting there on the hill, the Ramah, with a spear in his hand and all, 
And why was he sitting there? It was through the merit of that great Etz Eshel, that tamarisk tree, that big tree who's from Ramah, and that's Shmuel Hanavi, who's compared to a huge tree from the Ramah. So what does that mean? It was in Shmuel's merit that Saul's there because Shmuel was praying for Saul. And that's the only reason Saul's been around this long. Saul is sitting under the shelter of Shmuel, that big tamarisk tree, great and sturdy. And he's praying in the Ramah where he lives on Saul's behalf. Saul might not know it, but Shmuel's praying for him because Saul had already been doomed after the war against Amalek when he committed his famous fiasco. And the Midrash says that the next two and a half years of his life were granted him because Shmuel had prayed that Saul not die before him. Shmuel did not want to see King Saul taken from the world during his own lifetime. The way a teacher doesn't want to see a student die before him. The way a father doesn't want to outlive his son. So Shmuel wanted to die before Saul. He did not want to see the king that he anointed die before him. So a couple of extra years were added to the life of Saul. So if Shmuel died early, why did the verse say about him that he became very old? He wasn't very old. We know he was 52 years old when he died. So the sages teach us that Hashem made him look old. So the people wouldn't think that he died young because of some sin. So all that is gleaned from the verse that Saul is sitting under a tamarisk tree, Birama. Now, like we said, Saul doesn't know or appreciate what Shmuel's done for him. And in the verse right before this, we see that a new prophet, a different prophet, pops onto the scene. His name is God, G-A-D. And it wasn't Shmuel. It was God who spoke to David, who told him to get back to Eretz Yehuda. What happened to Shmuel? Why wasn't he the one who came to David to tell him that? So it's very possible that Saul had deteriorated to such an extent that he wouldn't dare allow Shmuel meet David. It was dangerous for Shmuel to do so. So we saw a new prophet, God, doing it instead. Okay, so that's verse 6. And all that is an introduction to King Saul's two-verse pep talk here to his men. And it's a doozy, and here it is. And Saul said to the servant standing by him, Listen, sons of Benjamin, or listen, you Benjaminites. Do you think that the son of Jesse will give you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make you the commander of thousands and the commander of hundreds like I do? So Saul's saying, your fellow Benjaminites, you're from my clan. You should be looking out for me. And in Hebrew, it sounds better. It's not just men of Benjamin, but Bnei which literally means sons of Benjaminites. And when he's trashing David here, saying David won't give you what I give you, he calls him Ben Ishai, the son of Jesse. That is, he's the son of Jesse, and you guys are the sons of Benjaminites. So who are you going to be loyal to? Where's your tribal allegiance? He says, will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards and appoint you commanders in the army? He doesn't have the means to do it. He doesn't have any allegiance to you. And you can also see in the verse the zilzul and the anger, the cheapening he has for everybody. His servants are called Bnei Binyamin, children of Benjamin. David is Benishai, son of Jesse. In a few verses, he's going to call the high priest Benachituv instead of calling him by his first name. And we mentioned that before, when you call somebody by his last name only, that's a sign of disrespect. Of course, it depends how you say it, but we see here that Saul's overall tone is zilzul, to diminish people. But his fellow tribesmen always treat him with respect. And you can see this respect and loyalty in the very way the verse opens up. It says that the servants stood nitzavim by Saul. They were standing by his side. That's how we open the verse. You actually have the same expression in the previous verse. It says that Saul is standing with a spear in his hand. And all the servants were standing by him. So it says the same thing twice in a row. They're standing by him 
at the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7, and Saul said to his servants who were standing by him, their nitzavim love. And Rabbi Kahana says that you can see in the verse the unity, which is very characteristic of the tribe of Binyamin, and we'll see this as we go along, it's part of their strength. They are very unified as a tribe. We can say they're unified to a fault. For instance, in the story of the concubine on the hill, at the end of the book of Judges, we see that they did not inform on their fellow tribesmen who committed an atrocity. They refused to turn them over, and that caused a huge civil war after that. So they unified to a fault. It's over the top, but it's also the secret to their strength. And it's the reason that Saul's kingdom, Beit Shaul, continued pretty strong even after Saul was killed. After Saul fell in war, the house of Saul remained pretty solid and it was tough for David to break through. That's because the tribe of Binyamin, they fight for each other. They're very unified. And again, you see that trait of unity here, that the servants are standing by Saul. They're sticking with him. They know he's not all there. They see his conduct. He's not exactly dealing with a full deck, but you can feel in the verse the loyalty they have towards him. Even though he's ranting and raving at them, and they know he's not 100%, they don't rebel. They continue to serve him. They're standing at his side. And they're standing at his side as he continues to scold them. As the verse continues, he says, For you have all conspired against me. And nobody told me that my son made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And none of you feel sorry for me or literally feel sick for me. And reveal to me. You haven't revealed to me that my son has incited my servant to rise up against me or to ambush me. Now this is one sick rant. And again, we'll unpack it piece by piece. First, what does Saul mean when he says, you have conspired against me? Well, in his paranoia, he may think that some deal was made with David. He says, no one tells me that my son made a covenant with the son of Jesse. You didn't let me know about David's breed with my son. Everybody knows about it but me, Saul's saying. Now again, Saul is paranoid because he's thinking that there's no way that David suddenly has 400 men at his side. No way he did that alone. So it must be that Jonathan helped him out. That's what the verse is saying. My son has incited my servant to rise up against me and ambush me. And you didn't tell me about it. And Saul is playing the victim here. He's telling his servants that David, he's going to use that army of his to rise up against me, to ambush me. And you must have known all along that Yonatan aided and abetted him. And I wanted to focus on the part of Saul's rant when he says, which literally means nobody is sick over this for me or nobody feels sorry for me. Nobody's concerned about it. He's really saying, nobody feels my pain. Nobody cares. And this is really pathetic, but these words that burst out of him really gets down to the root of his illness, and that's self-centeredness and narcissism. I mean, you can feel the self-pity in that verse. The Nobody is sick over this for me. Nobody identifies with my pain. My own servant David is planning to rebel against me. How are you so indifferent about this? Don't you care? And I read something really interesting by Rabbi Adin Steinjeltz of Blessed Memory on this part of the verse where he says, and you're not sick about it. Of course, in this context, what Saul is saying that nobody cares, nobody identifies with my pain. It's an expression of self-pity and it's negative. But Rav Steinjeltz takes this to another place in a totally different context. He says that Hashem wants you to be He wants you to feel his pain. He wants the Jew to have empathy for things that matter, such as the temple not being built, of the exile. We should care. We should be sick over it. We should feel Hashem's pain. And Rav Steinjels gives an example about himself. 
He says that when he was a little kid, he learned the story of Leah and Rachel. They were the two wives of Yaakov. And Rachel was the favorite. And it says that Leah was like Sug Bet. She was number two. She was an afterthought. And it said that she felt hated. That's what the verse says. And when Rav Steingelt learned this when he was a little kid, he said that even though he wasn't an oversensitive child and didn't cry much, he would actually cry when he read those verses. He really felt bad for Leah. He felt her pain that the verse says she felt hated. And he says that Hashem wants us to show the same empathy. That is, it's a good thing to show empathy and show your care. I know when there's something important, let's say I lost something important and I'm looking for it. Let's say my wallet. And I'll ask my kids, you know what my wallet is? And they'll say, Ainli Musag. I have no idea. But I know they're not feeling my pain. They didn't really look. What do you mean Ainli Musag? I have no idea. You didn't look. You don't feel my pain. Don't you care? To you, it's not that important. To me, it is. When I say, where's my wallet? Can you help me find it? I want you to care like I do. I want you to be chole alai. Anyway, that's just a totally different take on the en cholim alai. Okay, that's Saul's speech to his loyal men. And now it prompts Doega Edomi to speak up. Remember the last chapter when David ran away to Nov and he was aided by the priest Achimelech. And the verse said there that Doega Edomi, Saul's most important servant, was also there watching this whole thing unfold where the priest was helping David. He saw the priest give David Goliath's sword, the showbread, and he didn't run to tell Saul right away. But now we'll see after Saul's riveting speech, Doeg just can't resist it. And he's going to speak up now because he's got info that Saul will be very interested in. That he saw David at Nov with the priests. And that's what he said in verse 9. But Doeg the Edomite who was standing over Saul's officials. That is, he was the Abir Awim, the most important official of Saul. He was standing there. And he said, Ra'iti et Benishai, Banova. I saw the son of Jesse come to Nov, El Achimelech ben Achituv. He came to Achimelech, the son of Achituv, the priest in Nov. Vishalo Bashem. And Achimelech inquired of the Lord for him. Venatanlo et cherev Goliata Plishti. And he gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So here is Doeg Adomi, spilling his guts saying stuff that's going to get Achimelech in big trouble. And he's justifying this according to the halacha. After all, Doeg Adomi is not just Saul's top advisor, Abir Aroim, he's Av Beitin. He's a halachic scholar. And he's convinced he's carrying out Jewish law by snitching on the priests to the king. And that's what the Abarbanel says, and I quote, When Doeg heard Saul's speech, he said, I shall not conceal anything from my master, the king. And of course, that's the way sin is. You justify it. Now notice that everything Dawek says, it's true. Achimelech did supply David with Goliath's sword. And he did give him provisions. He's not lying. But Lashanara, evil speech, isn't necessarily a lie. Of course, Doeg left out a small detail. The most important detail of all. He didn't tell Saul that Achimelech had no idea that there was a problem between Saul and David. He forgot to mention that Achimelech was innocently helping David because he thought David was on a mission from the king. But the way he doesn't put it that way, he puts a spin on it, that Achimelech was aiding and abetting a man who has rebelled against the king. So many times, Lashon Arai, evil speech, it's not what you say, it's what you don't say. That he didn't tell Saul that Achimelech acted innocently and didn't know about the problem with Saul and David. That makes it Lashon Arai. You selectively reveal what you want to reveal. Just like the mass media does. It's not what they report that's necessarily wrong, which it often is, but it's also what they don't report. They decide what to show you, and the Doeg decided what to tell Saul and what to leave out. And Rabbi Kahana comments on how Doeg he waited 
After all, he saw Achimelech help David a long time ago, in the last chapter. But only now, here in this verse, he decides to form an insight and say Lashanara about the priest. So the Rav writes, and I quote it, Until now, Doeg didn't malshin, he didn't snitch, because after all, he's a gadol. He's the great rabbi of that generation, the Av Beitin, Abiruim. He's not going to just snitch. He knows Lashanara is a sin, and he knows what Saul is liable to do if he slanders the priests. But now, following Saul's rant, he just can't resist the temptation to spill the beans, to say what he knows. After all, Saul is saying, why doesn't somebody step up and help me? So Doeg is holding this information inside. He can't withhold it any longer. And part of it is because he doesn't like David. He's also jealous of him. He also needs the kavod. And that's one of the reasons he's called Doeg. Doeg in Hebrew means worry. He's always worrying about his kavod, about his honor. And by the way, there's a Midrash that says that what made Doeg even more jealous of David was an incident that happened when they were both at the tabernacle in Nov at the same time. It says that one of the priests had a question in Jewish law and David and Doeg were present and the priest asked the question to David and not to Doeg. So Doeg got even more jealous. He's thinking to himself, why didn't he turn to me when he had a question in Jewish law? Why'd they ask David? And so like it says in Ethics of the Fathers in chapter 4, that envy, lust, and honor drive a man from the world. But again, he didn't tell Saul right away, but it was just such juicy info that he had, he couldn't resist. And I think that's what happens to us too. Let's say you know something, some good gossip. You're not going to go around telling it because it's not right. It's Lashon But then when you're sitting around with people informally, shooting the breeze, and that person comes up in conversation, then it becomes hard to shut up. You feel you have to contribute to the conversation now. Like, you know something they don't. So we can all learn from this. And by the way, it says that Doeg, despite that he was a tremendous Torah scholar and the world looked to him as some great tzaddik, the sages teach us in Sanhedrin 90 that Doeg Adomi does not have a place in the world to come. And with that, he joins the advisor of David, Achitofel, who basically had the same position for David. He was also a genius but evil. He also does not have a place in the world to come. We'll learn about Achitofel later on when David becomes the king and takes Achitofel as his main advisor. So we see here that Doeg and Demi, he's basically spilled the blood of the priests by what he said. He's got King Saul now all riled up and Saul now is going to waltz into Nov with his army and he's going to commit a sin in Nov that's going to make the sin of Amalek look like child's play and we'll see that next week.